Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Novel. A listener note. This episode contains violence, including sexual violence and references to child abuse. Previously on Deliver Us from Herbal. I think by the time Ervil had died, I knew it really wasn't over because with such an unstable group founded on such erroneous principles, you never really know what to expect. I'm Gabriella LeBaron, and my father is Ervil LeBaron. Children naturally worship their parents, but my experience with my dad was taken to a whole new level because he actually was the representation of God on earth. This is the Book of the New Covenant. It's a manifesto of Ervil LeBaron. I mean, it's just wonderful writing, consistently crazy all the way through. Cult wasn't even a word we knew of. There was no cult. We were the KOG, if anything. The KOG. Yeah, we called ourselves the KOG. We were God's kingdom. Changed my life forever as far as my worry about personal safety for me and my family. Like the mafia, right? So the mafia breaks apart. One team goes against the other team. Now everybody was going to try to kill each other. We were in the car and she just said, I have to tell you that Arthur's been killed. And I froze like my whole body went like cold, white, frozen. Don't tell anybody that you know. That was it. See, Heber didn't study. He was not one of those kind of guys. He was more of a party like a rock star type of guy. But the thing is, in the cult, is that a person can't do that.
Of all the stories Gabrielle LeBaron told me about her childhood, living in the second generation of Herbal LeBaron's cult, the Kingdom of God, the KOG, there's one that sticks in my mind. I keep coming back to it. I went swimming in the ocean. I was eight years old. By myself. And I swam and swam and swam and swam as far as I could. Unlike many of the stories Gabriella told me about her life, it wasn't about violence at the hands of others. I was having this grand old time. I would play this game where I would pretend to be a dolphin and jump over the waves, hop over the waves. Gabriella was out alone in the Sea of Cortez, swimming free. And I tried to hop and hop over waves as they were coming in little mountain waves. I was hopping over them and hopping over them. And then when I finally came back to the present moment and turned around and to see the shore, I had swam so far that people were itty bitty way out on shore. And I was like, no problem. You know, just turn around, float on the waves, let them bring you back. And I came back and it drifted me down like a half a mile. When Gabriella started this story, I thought she was telling me about happiness, about one of those rare moments where she felt real joy. And I walked back up. I was like, did you guys see what I just did? You know, I came back with like, (gasps) but everyone was doing their thing. Nobody noticed, you know, nobody noticed. But as her story went on, I heard something else. If I wanted to walk forever into the horizon, I could. At this point, Gabriella was just eight years old. She had no adult in the world to look out for her. Her protective big brother Arthur was dead, her mother gone too. But it was worse than that. For Gabriella and all the children and teenagers around her, there was no one to protect them from each other. There were no boundaries for me. There was absolutely not a single person that would stop me. The horizon was forever. These traumatized and indoctrinated children and teenagers reenacting the abuse and violence inflicted on them. Everybody was a crazy little freaking Spartan extremist terrorist not knowing anything else in the world. This was the KOG. Their horizon was forever. No boundaries. Not a single person to stop them. This is God's law. We have to do it. Otherwise, the whole world will go to hell. Like Armageddon, you know? Satan will win in the end if we don't do this. And now, in 1984, there was this 19-year-old kid, newly at the helm of their death cult. Heber was the authority. William Heber LeBaron, Gabriella's half-brother. Just like their dad, he was tall, good-looking. He had bright, bright blonde hair, Raised up in an extremist faith, schooled in crime and violence, and with a rage inside him that no one seemed able to control. We were terrified of him. From the teams at Novel and iHeartRadio, this is Deliver Us from Herbal. Episode 9, Abdication. No child of Herbal LeBaron was permitted a conventional childhood. And his son Heber was certainly no exception. In 1975, aged just 11 years old, 
he was pulled out of school. Sent to work in an appliance repair operation in Denver, run by Ervil's then right-hand man, Dan Jordan. Here, he'd labor alongside his siblings in what was essentially a sweatshop. He was one of those child slaves, and they worked so hard, all of them. There was no wages, right? You couldn't own anything. You couldn't buy a new pair of shoes. You couldn't, you couldn't do anything. You had to send all this money back to the family, to the cult. Unlike his brother Arthur, who had been Ervil's chauffeur, Heber had virtually no relationship with his father. This was the case with most of Ervil's children. He'd only seen him a handful of times. When he was in Denver, Heber lived under Dan Jordan's brutal supervision. And he was whipped. What they would do is these things that they would put inside the screen window to hold the screen down, this rubber whatever thing they would stick inside the window, they would pull those out and whip the children with them. And they would get a minimum of 40 lashes. As a kid, Heber was frail, and he often had little to eat. Sometimes just living off what the mothers in the clan could scavenge from dumpsters for him and the others, or what Dan Jordan saw fit to pass their way between the beatings. Gabriella lived in fear of those steam belts too, but she says Heber often got the worst of it. And I know that Heber grew up with that abuse like as early as he was, you know, three, four, five years old. The boys were all made to work really hard, and they were beat and beat and beat and starved and beat and made to work in all cold, freezing temperature. They weren't allowed sweaters and, you know, warm clothes or anything. In his teens, Heber got to live in another cult house in Dallas, Texas. Life there seemed better. But at the age of 18, a year after Ervil had died, Heber was instructed to return to Dallas and the appliance business. When he refused? Heber's mom showed up and she had a gun with her and some other guy. And they were there to force Heber to come back and join them. Either come back or die. His own mother, Anna Mae Marston, a devoted wife who married Ervil in 1961. The cult ordered her to control the teenage Heber. They sent his own mother to kill him. Mother was sent to kill him? Mm-hmm. Um, he was scared of his own mom. For a time, Heber had worked alongside his brother Arthur to develop the family's now growing import-export business. He decided to begin stealing cars from the States and bringing them to Mexico and selling them and getting tons of cash. And they were so good at it. The people who purchased them on the Mexican side were the Mexican mafia. And the mafia would be like, I mean, mafia guys, they would be super excited to buy cars from us. We brought down like the coolest, biggest cars. Together, they expanded their business beyond cars. They also started to smuggle marijuana from Mexico to the States. Heber and Arthur enlisted Gabriela in this new venture. I used to help pack the marijuana. I thought that was cool, you know? I was eight years old, you know, I was like, oh, this is cool. I get, I get to be part of this, like, secret work that only adults can do. That was so cool. And it smells so good. So we would pack it really tightly in saran wrap, as tight as we could, and then um, pack it inside a gas tank, a fake gas tank. So a gas tank would be pulled off, cut, 
you stick all the marijuana in there, seal it up somehow, and then drive that in a normal pickup truck and then have somebody who doesn't even know that there's marijuana in the car, some cult member who has no idea. Okay, you need to go to the States and do X, Y, and Z and you're going to drive this car. Heber may have enjoyed this new line of work, the chance to escape Dan Jordan's sweatshop, but he wasn't that interested in the other side of cult life, in doctrine, theology, or really any of the religious underpinnings of the KOG. Perhaps unsurprising for a teenager who had suffered such abuse at the hands of the deeply religious, or maybe hanging out with Mexican mafiosos in the early 80s, distracted him from Herbal's Book of the New Covenant. A kind of freedom for this wild teenager who loved rock and roll and the band Scorpions. He was part of the smuggling, drug smuggling stuff, and he hung out with the guys, and every now and then he would just, he would party with them and do some coke and marijuana. So he was definitely like a heathenish personality within the cult. A 19-year-old rock and roll loving drug smuggler living a life far from the theological underpinnings of his family. You know, he wanted to make money, and um, Heber didn't really care about praying or anything. But when tragedy struck in 1983 and Arthur was murdered by Leo Evanick's splinter group, suddenly Heber, in the final days of his teens, was in charge. And having heard the stories of Heber's neglected childhood, it's kind of hard to square it with someone suddenly being given this role. The mantle of the one mighty and strong. Then again, Heber's name isn't actually written into the Book of the New Covenants as a future leader. It was the now-murdered Arthur who had been specifically named as Ervil's successor. But Heber had been there during that prison ceremony in 81 when Ervil placed his hands on Arthur to pass on the title. And by birth, Heber was the next son in line after him. So even though Heber didn't have visions, prophecies, or even an apparent interest in theology, to the kingdom of God, the line of succession was clear. Heber's life changed forever. Suddenly the pressure was on him to be the authority, which he didn't want. He wanted to be happy-go-lucky and go to concerts and not have this pressure on him. He didn't know what to do. He was torn. Those flashes of hedonism and freedom and his new obligations of the one mighty and strong with responsibility to keep the entire cult together, to make sure the group were tight, no one left, that the money was coming in, the kids were clothed and fed. And added to this pressure was his childhood conditioning, violence and punishment, all he'd known since birth. So when it fell on him, he didn't, he didn't handle it well at all. That's coming up after the break.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In early 1984, Heber LeBaron, the new leader of the KOG arrived in La Jolla. His first order of business as one mighty and strong? To deal with the fallout of his brother Arthur's killing. Arriving at the ranch in Sonora, there was no sign of Leo Evanick, although his enforcers, the Rios brothers, remained at the camp. They were leery, on guard. But Heber had come in peace. When Arthur got killed, there was no vengeance. Nobody was trying to take revenge. We were worried about the attack coming to us. He told the Rios brothers he wanted to end the violence, put this all behind them. Once Heber gained their trust that he wasn't going to enact vengeance against them, they decided to remain at La Jolla. And eventually they renounced their ties to Leo and swore loyalty to Heber, the new one mighty and strong. For several months, a calm settled over the camp. 
maybe the reign of Heber would be an era of reconciliation for the cult? Heber answered that question definitively one afternoon in March of 1984. One of the Rios brothers, the one named Gamaliel, was sitting in the airstream talking to other cult members. Heber walked in. After a little chit-chat, Heber pulled a 45 from his waistband and shot Gamaliel in the face, turned to the others sitting there, and ordered them to clean up the fucking mess before nonchalantly walking out. Gamaliel's brother, Raul Rios, was next. A few days after Gamaliel's execution, Raul was caught fleeing the camp. He'd only made it a few miles from the ranch when the KOG ambushed and killed him. The Rios brothers were dead. But Leo remained in the wind, as were the other factions of Herbal's former church, those families the kingdom of God now viewed as threats. The KOG weren't done yet. We also had to prepare ourselves for big wars that were coming and be tough for it. Leo's group were out there still and dangerous. And we had to defend ourselves from the real or perceived threat from Leo's group. So um, we all just had to learn how to shoot guns. The kids, as young as seven, were given revolvers, an AR-15, a 22 rifle, a shotgun. Put a little bottle up on a post and try to shoot it, you know, and try with all the different kinds of guns. And you have to, like, hold it, and then you have to pull this thing on the AR-15, hear it click, and then you can let it go, and then you can shoot. And then you have to, like, hold it positioned, like, exactly on your shoulder, and then you shoot. The AR-15 was pretty heavy, yeah, and the shotgun. Those are pretty big. I have a nine-year-old daughter, and I tried to imagine her with these weapons in her small hands, trying to hold her body fully upright under the weight of the steel of an AR-15 or a 12-gauge as it recoils. It makes me sick to even picture it. Shooting the guns is not the traumatic part, you know? The traumatic part is the load that comes, that you're actually going to be faced with a major war. And you might have to shoot people. So that's the really nerve-wracking part. And you have to prepare for it. So you can't have any kind of feelings. You can't have any soft feelings. You have to still yourself and, and just be really, really tough and be ready to suffer anything that comes. But as 1984 passed, word reached the KOG that Leo had moved to Monterey, California to start a new life with his own church. The imminent threat of attack had passed for now. And yet, the fear of a coming war was never far away. In their minds, the KOG weren't short on enemies. The entire world was out to get them, Gentiles and infidels. And so the KOG prepared, like a mafia family. Think of it as a committee. It was not a top-down government type of thing. So it wasn't like a kingdom where the king is like, I'm the new king and everybody's going to do what I say. It didn't happen that way. People influenced each other. Everybody interpreted the law together. It was the whole teenage group was a Supreme Court, basically. And the leader was the person saying, okay, ultimately we have to do X, Y, and Z. You know? So the leader could be like influenced, heavily influenced by the other 
teenage kids who believed this is what this says, this is what we have to do. So Heber was influenced a lot by the teenage kids. We all agree that we have to do this. The when and the how is something we have to work on eventually. To hear Gabriella describe them, these teenagers were like mafia capos in this ruling committee. Their personalities dictating distinct roles they'd carved out for themselves. And this way that they organized themselves, with the one mighty and strong at the head, but actual decision-making done through consensus, it's something a lot of cops and prosecutors struggled to get their heads around chasing the cult. Like, exactly who was controlling all this? Pulling all the strings? Well, it seems like if it was any one thing, it was Ervil's Book of the New Covenants, the BNC, their father's opus, which was now being interpreted by these different ruling committee members, who, remember, were mostly just teenagers. There was Heber's half-brother Andrew, the oldest son of Ervil and the now-deceased Lorna Chinoth. He was the KOG's best mechanic. Andrew was cool. He was like Fonzie cool. And I was like fascinated by him. Next was Aaron, who they mostly called Mo, Andrew's full brother. He was considered frail and the most kind-hearted of the remaining LeBaron's sons. When Heber and Andrew were gone from the ranch, Aaron was in charge of the children, who were mostly orphans now. They called him Mommy Mo sometimes because he made sure that we ate well. He was the one that was like the mellow, studious, moral compass for us, being good and studying hard and praying and learning and reading and making sure we were well versed in our own doctrine. Other capos in the KOG ruling committee were Heber's sisters. Cynthia. Cynthia was pretty much a diva. And Jacqueline. Jackie was a hardcore extremist. She was definitely a person that kept everything to the T. And Patricia, or Trish. Trish was one of the adults I was kind of scared of. She had a little bit of an attitude, but she was definitely the cool person of the crowd. There were elite members, and then there were the nobodies. And Trish was the elite of the elites. When she was talking, everyone just had to be quiet and listen to her. All these siblings, so many names, it's hard to keep track, I know. But don't worry if you've already lost track. Each would play their own crucial role in what's to come. A chain reaction of escalating tension and violence that would define the second generation of the KOG. And yet, from the vantage point of a kid like Gabriella in the mid-1980s, her older brothers and sisters just seemed really cool. The way they wore their jeans, the way they wore their hair, the way they wore everything, everything that they did, they were the cool, the grown-ups, the cool kids. They got us all into Jane Fonda workouts and wearing cropped-off T-shirts and big, giant hair and, you know, 80s, all this 80s-style stuff. I love imagining you guys doing Jane Fonda workouts out in the desert. That's exactly what we did. <laughs> Jane Fonda workouts out in the desert. <laughs> Is there extreme trailers around you? <laughs> <laughs> and they would teach us about being good women and preparing to be good wives and building God's kingdom and being ready for whatever had to happen. 
By 84, the kingdom of God had rented a house inside the mafia-controlled town of Caborca, where they converted the front porch to a proper chop shop. They specialized in building bulletproof four-wheel drive vehicles. Business was booming. Clean-cut-looking teens like Heber and many of his siblings, who all spoke perfect English, they aroused little suspicion in the U.S. And most were dual citizens, meaning getting back and forth across the border was easy for them to smuggle guns, drugs, and stolen cars. Things went well for a while. But then one day in 1985, the Colt's best mechanic, Andrew, that Fonzie cool presence in the group, just seemed to disappear. He was around. He was one of the guys around. And he would play with the kids and create bonfires. And he's just one of those cool kids. And I remember one day he just didn't come to the ranch. And I asked about him and they said, we don't know. Don't ask the question. And I just never saw him again. So he was one of those that just never came back. Had Heber just had him killed? Just shut your mouth. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. But Andrew's sudden disappearance wasn't the only thing going wrong with the cult around this time. Because as 1985 turned to 1986, the KOG's ruling committee were getting more than a little frustrated with their one mighty and strong leader, Heber. There were suddenly money issues for the cult. Not helped by Andrew's disappearance. He was the group's best mechanic. So that shut down a lot of the stolen car business and drug smuggling. Then there was also Heber's abuse of the kids. Random violence. Gabriella tells how he would just suddenly explode with rage. Beat the members of the KOG. Whip them like he had been whipped as a kid. Relentlessly with those steam belts. No warning. And then, the elephant that had always been in the room when it came to Heber and the KOG. His refusal to engage with the cult's religion. Kind of a big deal. Not just that he didn't get revelations from God. He didn't even seem to know herbal scriptures. It seemed like all he wanted to do was party with his mafia friends. Due to Andrew's death, the KOG was no longer flush with cash. They were back to days of hunger. And the rank and file were beginning to doubt Heber's mantle as the one mighty and strong. He needed a miracle, something to make them believe in him again. So in 1986, he came up with an extremely risky plan to get some fast cash. He picked up a gun and crossed the border into the U.S. That's coming up after the break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. 
if you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Promenade Center in the Dallas suburb of Richardson is a single-story strip mall. Underneath the endless blue Texas sky, you could be in pretty much any U.S. suburb on a nice day. A main road separates a parking lot from low-rise housing. Rarely are there people on the sidewalks, especially when it's hot. And of course, in the summer it often is. When the traffic is light, you could say it's peaceful. If you are being charitable, I guess. It has that going for it. Good location if you don't want to be noticed. On November 5th, 1986, the Promenade Center was home to Gibraltar Savings and Loan, a small bank. It was just one big room. There were four employees. It was small. And then there were a couple of desks over to the left side where if someone came in and wanted to open a new account, that's the part of the building you'd go to. And then to the right were the two teller windows. Jane was working at Gibraltar Savings and Loan that Wednesday in November 1986, alongside two co-workers, Arlene and Brenda. So I was standing at my teller window with Arlene on my left and then Brenda next to her. I remember we had three or four people in each line and I had just waited on a customer they left and the person that comes up next to me was Heber. 
I believe he had on a black leather jacket, I think. I know he had tape from ear to ear on his chin. Heber LeBaron, leader of the KOG, had arrived in Dallas to rob Jane's bank. And the tape, which for some reason Heber had chosen over the standard bank robber mask, was to stop anyone from getting a good look at him. I just remember the gun pointing at me. (laughs) Seeing the gun. Yeah. Holy shit, there is a gun pointing at me. Jane had never been robbed, never held at gunpoint. And he said, give me all your money, none of that funny money either. But she had received training about what to do if it ever happened. The most important thing is just getting them out of the building. So follow directions. We follow directions what he said for the most part. Heber handed her a plastic grocery bag. And I took it and I emptied my drawer and put all the money in there, including my dye pack, which he told me not to do. An exploding dye pack placed inside a bundle of the cash. The thought did cross my mind that I shouldn't put it in there. But then again, there's not a weight difference. So it's not like he's going to tell that it's heavier. And it does have money, you know, actual money on the top and bottom of it. And then he motioned to my coworker and said, your money too. And she was terrified. She said, mine too. And the branch manager says, yes. And she grabs the bag and opened her drawer and started putting money in it. Jane's colleagues were not handling the situation as coolly as she was and were not handing Heber any funny money. They did not give their dye pack from their drawer. So then he just took the bag and left. And then we locked the door. Which is important when you've handed over funny money to an armed bank robber. When they go through the door, it activates the dye pack. And then within so many seconds of going through the doorway, the dye pack will explode and spew red dye all over the money. And that is what happened. They busted a hole in his bag. Most of Heber's newfound wealth, about three or $4,000 in total, was now covered in dye and spread all over the ground. I heard that he stopped to pick it up. And when he did that, he was caught by the police. Well, not quite yet, but squad cars were approaching from the mall parking lot right next to the bank. Heber made it to his car, but was immediately blocked in by cops. Heber could tell he was surrounded, but he made a run for it into an underground garage. More cops arrived, on foot and on motorbikes, the cops yelling at him to stop. Instead, he turned, raised his 45 and pointed it at the nearest one. Before he fired, he tried to click off the safety, but hit a different button on accident, the one that releases the clip. It clattered on the ground. An officer put his gun to Heber's head and warned him he'd kill him if he picked it up. Six days later, Roger Samuel Harrison, the fake name Heber had given police, was arraigned on charges of aggravated robbery, with his bail set at $50,000. The KOG took care of the bail, and three weeks later he was released. With his crime and bail all registered under his fake name, he had no intention of ever returning to face the music. He just switched to another one of his many fake aliases and crossed back into Mexico. But arriving back with his brothers and sisters in the cult, It wasn't a return to business as usual. 
Heber felt he had screwed up so bad when he had the authority. He gave the authority to the next brother in line, Mo, also called Aaron. For Heber, the short stint in jail for the bank robbery had been clarifying. A time of soul-searching and repentance. He'd lost his way after Arthur had been killed, became more mafia godfather than one mighty and strong. So he was giving up the authority of that title and the authority of cult leadership. From this moment on, he dedicated himself fully to his father's religion and let someone else lead the cult. With Heber replaced as leader, it was to be Aaron, the studious cult member the KOG also called Mo, now taking charge of the cult. He was the new one mighty and strong. He was devout, deeply immersed in the book of the new covenant. And for cult members like Heber, this meant those nights of coke and booze and their mafia friends were gone. When Mo came, it was more of like, we have to study really hard. We have to pray really hard. We need guidance on the right thing to do. We're going to do things right, study and pray, eat healthy. But it wasn't all prayer, study, and diets in the kingdom of God at this point. There was also planning going on. Lots of planning. Because by 1987, the KOG were, for once, not on the defensive. Not under direct attack. And they could start to look outwards, across the border into America, to try to fulfill what the Book of the New Covenant was really all about. Vengeance on Ervil's sworn enemies. So he goes off to do his business, drops his drawers, is in the process, and two people walk up. One drills him in the head, and the other shoots him in the chest. That's coming up in the next episode of Deliver Us from Ervil. Deliver Us from Ervil is hosted by me, Jesse Hyde, and written and reported by me, Leona Hamid, and David Waters. Production from Leona Hamid and David Waters, Sean Glynn and Max O'Brien are executive producers. Lena Chang and Megan Oyinka are researchers. Mariana Gongora is our field producer. Fact-checking by Danya Suleiman and Sona Avakian. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolfe. Austin Mitchell is our creative director of production. Michael e. Rao is our managing editor. Gavin Haynes is our head of development. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Sound design, mixing, and scoring by Nicholas Alexander and Daniel Kempson. Music supervision by Nicholas Alexander and David Waters. Our music is composed by Julian Lynch. Special thanks to Scott Anderson, Scott Carrier, Del Van Atta, Pippa Smith, Saskia Edwards, Matt O'Mara, Katrina Norvell, and Beth Ann Macaluso, Oren Rosenbaum, Shelby Shankman, and all the team at UTA. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.